0: This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Well, if we haven't met before, if you're visiting or you're new or newer to our church, uh, my name is Adam Vermontis, and I am one of the pastors here on staff and I get to do um, a lot of the teaching and preaching and so that's the case this morning and if we haven't met I would love love to meet you I know we have a lot of new friends hanging around our church and so uh, if we haven't met before come say hi after church I'd love to love to meet you uh, if you've been around our church uh, for any amount of time you will be familiar with uh, where we've been in our preaching series uh, we are in a book of the Old Testament it's called Exodus uh, if you've brought a Bible with you. I'll invite you to go ahead and open that to the book of Exodus now. And I was doing a little bit of uh, archive research on how long we've been preaching through this. We, we, we kind of handled this in two different sections. So we, we, we did the first 15 chapters, which leads from uh, the uh, God's people in Egypt up to their deliverance uh, at the Red Sea. So we did that a couple of years back, and then we took a break and did some other stuff, and, and then we picked back up, um, I believe, if my ar- archives are correct, I believe I, we picked it back up in January of this year. So I couldn't get exact numbers, but I, I do know this, that, that it was over 12 months worth of preaching um, and at least 40 sermons, but I'm pretty sure we... Didn't record them all because that's just what happens sometimes. So it's been it's been a journey. So if you were and I realize not all of you have been with us through all of Exodus, but today is the final sermon in the book of Exodus. So uh, if you've enjoyed uh, the sermons, even just a, a quarter of how much I've enjoyed uh, studying and preparing and preaching them, then then we're all winning. Uh, I've really I've felt like uh, the book of Exodus has been incredibly. Timely um, in the life of the world, in the life of our church, and so, so this is the end of it. Uh, next week, I believe next week we will we'll we'll just uh, truck into a new um, section of scripture. And what I've decided to do, and there's there's some connection to what's going on here, and I'll kind of segue to the passage today. Um, the end of Exodus um, is God's people um, leaving the Mount of Sinai. Uh, and Mount Sinai is where where God delivered the commands. It's where they've been camped for for many weeks, we believe, and months at this point, possibly even years. Um, and and they're leaving the mountain. And so next week we're gonna we're actually going back to a mountain. Um, oddly enough, we are gonna we're gonna spend uh, ten weeks or so looking at Jesus's sermon on the mount uh, that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter five. And uh, at least to date, the plan is actually just to look at the Beatitudes. Um, so if you're familiar with the New Testament, the Beatitudes are are the opening words of blessing that Jesus gives um, on the Mount in the New Testament recorded in the book of Matthew. So that's where we're headed. Uh, but for today, we're going to look at um, uh, uh, just a few passages in the closing words of Exodus. And uh, so, so this sermon technically is covering uh, several chapters. It's covering chapter 33 and 34, um, and also cha- the end of chapter 40. Uh, and you're saying, what, well, you're cheating, Adam. Why aren't we doing 35 through 39? Well, 35 through 39, we've kind of covered its, its repetitive material from um, the instructions for building the tabernacle. So chapters 35 through 39 are are God's people doing what God told them to do in the building of the tabernacle? So it's, it's a bit repetitive in, in, in its content. So today we're gonna look at um, a few passages uh, and I'm gonna jump around a little bit. I'll try to guide you if you're following along. We're gonna begin in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. I'm gonna read down through verse 23. Then we're gonna hop over and read a couple verses from chapter 34. And then we're gonna read some closing verses from chapter 40. So this is God's word for us this morning from the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, "'See, you say to me, bring up this people, "'but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. "'Yet you have said, I know you by name, "'and you've also found favor in my sight. "'Now, therefore, if i found favor in your sight, "'please show me now your ways, "'that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. "'Consider, too, that this nation is your people.' And he, that's the, this is the Lord now speaking, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this is Moses now speaking, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, "'This very thing that you have spoken I will do, "'for you have found favor in my sight, "'and I know you by name.'" And Moses said, "'Please, show me your glory.'" And he said, "'I will make all my goodness pass before you "'and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, "'and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, "'and I will show mercy mercy on whom I will show mercy.'" But he said, "'You cannot see my face, "'for man shall not see me and live.'" And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Going down to verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And now chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, we, we need to hear from you this morning. Uh, these people are not gathered here to, uh, to hear from a man. We are here to hear from you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take the words of this one man's mouth and that you would make them pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are a rock, you are a redeemer, and we need uh, to hear from you today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Came across an article uh, this week in the New York Times. Let's let's be clear. I, I I do not read the New York Times regularly. I'm more of a Albu- Albuquerque Journal kind of guy. Uh, but I had a friend share an article, and so I popped over and, and read the article on the New York Times. And the title of the article was "A Generation of Men Give Up on College." And the gist of the article uh, was just kind of the the, ch- the change in the demographics of uh, higher education and how men seem to be kind of falling off. Uh, the Cliff, and some of the statistics were i think uh, it was I jotted a couple down fifty nine point five percent of college students currently this is this is to date are women, so majority are women. Um, and la- uh, last year, they assessed uh, that there's 1, 1.5 million less students in higher ed- education than there were five years ago. Now, a part of that they accredited to the pandemic or whatever. But but out of those 1.5 million uh, decline in, in enrollment in higher education, 71% of that is, is men. And so it's, it's caught people's attention and... And the article just kind of, you know, went through and, you know, they, they really acknowledge, you know, like, well, let's not get into to gender politics and, you know, like, let's just, let's just name some things to be true. And, they, and, and basically, you know, the, the thesis of the article was, was men struggle uh, to, to find their way through higher education. Uh, they, they, you know, they kind of did a compare and contrast with high school girls and how they're they're just a little bit more on top of things, right? They they know w- when they need to get their transcripts sent in and you know deadlines and and all that and 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 young men and I know there's maybe just a couple with us that are currently in the process. You know, it's okay, you you, you get through this, but like young men typically have a hard time pressing through that. And they, they interviewed a number of, of uh, young college students and high school students in this article. And, I, and I, a couple of things they said, I mean, they, they said things like this, um, just acknowledging their struggle of the process. They said, I'm sort of waiting for a light to come on so I figure out what to do next. Another, another male student says, I don't really know why I'm having such a hard time. I just feel lost. And then in the conclusion of the article, I don't even remember you know, who the guy was. It was somebody up in higher education. He, he said this. He said that uh, this is his assessment of the situation that's going on uh, with young men in higher education. He said that there is a hope deficit. And his suggestion was that in order to, to resolve the deficit in hope is that men need help. Young men need help. So they're creating these centers to like help young men get through through the process. He said, "You know, young men don't need to pull them up, themselves up by the bootstraps because they simply cannot do it alone." Um. My question I want to ask today of this text and and of your life is: Do you resonate with that struggle at all? Now, again, I, I know very. Small portion are young men preparing for higher education but 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 the struggle that they 're naming there this this process of knowing where you 're going and how to get there um, and and maybe just you know the the rip current that is underneath the struggle is this deficit of hope, and you know for the Israelites. Um, you know, their, their future is bright, uh, but they don't know it, right? They, they, they've heard about the land that's flowing with milk and honey that God has promised them. You know, earlier in this passage, I didn't read it, but God has said, I will clear out all your enemies. I will take out Ammonites and Hittites and Jebusites and every ite you've ever heard of. I will clear the way for you to go get where I'm taking you. And so their, their future is incredibly bright, but yet there's still this deficit of hope inside of them. And and, and what we see, you know, in Moses the mediator is, is him feeling lost and clueless and disoriented unless God's presence were with them. In fact, they outright refuse to move on without God's help. Uh, again, I didn't read it, but but they, they, they throw a bit of a, a pity party. They, they take off all their ornaments and they say, we're not going anywhere if you don't go with us. Because the Lord said, listen, I'll send an angel with you, but I'm not going with you. And the people said, no, that's unacceptable. And so God, you know, he, he, he refrains and he says, you know, I'm, I'll send my presence with you. You know, he changes his mind in essence. Um, here's, here's what I want to tap into today in, in our lives. Is that sense of of lostness, cluelessness, disorientation, the disruption that God has, I mean, you know, collectively, we're all coming out of a traumatic experience of having our worlds upended and and it seems to have no end. And so, you know, I'm making the assumption that everyone here to some degree has a bit of deficit of hope. Like, where are you taking me, Lord? What are you doing in my life? And the thing you need to see from this passage is, well, there's two things. Here's the two things I want you to see from the, the passage. I want you to see the hope of glory, and then I want you to see the help of goodness. So the hope and the help. The hope of glory, the help of goodness. Let's, let's look at the glory piece first, and that's, that's from the section of chapter 33 um, I read. Um, The thing that made Israel, God's people, um, unique was God's presence. You know, God was with no other people. God had chosen one person, his name was Abraham, and made a promise and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And he he had put particular love on a particular people. He said, this is what makes you distinct. I will be with you. And so, again, when, when, when God suggests the possibility of them moving forward without his presence, Moses says no. <laughs> he says, listen, you, you've made it very clear that like, that is what makes us unique. That is what makes us distinct. That is what makes us yours. But what Moses wants is more than his presence, he wants his fullness. So he says, uh, he says God, please show me your glory. Show me your kavod. Uh, show me your weight. Show me the fullness of who you are. I want to see it all. You know, it's a big ask. It's a bold ask. And God quickly shifts, if, if you notice. He says, he, right after Moses makes the request, he says, show, show me your glory. And says, well, I'll, I'll let my goodness pass over you. He, he couldn't... It, we cannot contain the glory. And here's the sermon most of you have heard if you've been around churches like ours. You cannot contain God's glory because you're sinful and it will destroy you and consume you. And so God in his mercy doesn't show you his glory. I don't think, I, I, don't, I think there's parts of that that could be true. Here's what I actually think. I think, I think God's, you know, in, in Moses' request, show me your glory. God says, he's looking at him in kindness and saying, you can't handle it. Like you just you don't, have a, you don't have a category for my fullness. You know, my, my weight will crush you, not in, not in wrath. My weight will crush you because you have no category to contain it. I am like no one else. There is none like me. So how does God relate to him? He relates to him like a man. He says, but listen, you, my goodness will pass over you. You can't see my face, which let me just make a comment on that because it seems as though Moses has seen God's face, right? Right? Uh, If you remember, if you've been with us in Exodus, uh, Moses had a meal, Moses and Joshua had a meal with the Lord and presumably the text says that they saw his feet, but the presumption is also that they were face-to-face with God. In fact, earlier in chapter 33, again, I didn't read it this morning, but it says that Moses spoke with God face-to-face as a man with a friend. So then what's going on? You know, has Moses seen his face or has he not seen his face? And you know, I'm, I'm, I don't wanna get bogged down in the technicalities, but the Hebrew word, so what, what happens is Moses says this, show me your kavod. And God says, you can't see my kavod, but I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you my panim. It's, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word for faith. So goodness could be trans, translated as face. And so you know, what God is saying is, you, you have to have a filter for me because unless I give you a filter like a face. You, can't, you, you won't be able to contain me. So I'm gonna give you a face. So I'll give you my face. I'll give you my presence. Um, but you can't have my fullness, right? And so, you know, w- what we're seeing and what Moses is fully aware of and what I want you to be aware of is that you were made for God's fullness. You were made to be in the weight of who God is. Um, but you currently can't, can, only, can only handle his face. And oh, does he give you his face? Oh does, oh, does the God of the Bible give you his face? Um, the, the, the hope deficit that I referred to from, from the article, um, I think that is, I think I already used the language of like a rip current. I think that's like a rip current in the Christian life. Um, You know, on any given day, I think I could I could pull, you know, most of you aside and ask you for like theological um, explanation for your hope. And you would tell me about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which which is the anchor of our hope. Um, But then on any given day, um, when you if you are to survey your life and you would say, am I living with the hope of glory? I mean if we're being honest, we would just all say probably not. And 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 why I call it a rip current is because I think what's what's happening in in our lives is we have equated the Christian life, you know, being in the presence of God, being guided by God, following God, just like the Israelites are. That's what we would all say we're doing as Christians. We're we're following God with our lives. We have equated that with having a good set of morals, right? Um, probably identifying with a particular political bent and then generally just trying to um, get through the daily existence of an American in 2021. Like if we can be good people who vote right and conduct our lives in a you know, broadly, generally good way like, and then we, we kind of wrap that together with Christian theological understanding that, like, that's what we think the Christian life is. And oh, how we have missed the mark. Um, the New Testament says, here's where your hope of glory is. Christ in you. You know, the Apostle Paul would say things like, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that, you know, that, that's, you know, a wonderful placard that you can purchase at Hobby Lobby and put in your home. But like, Christ in you, the hope of glory It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Now, that kind of language is the language of someone who's interested in um, the mysteries of God. And so I kind of want to land this first point by asking you some diagnostic questions. And the first question is, are are you really interested in living with the hope of glory now? And before you get quick to answer that, like, it's okay if you, if you say no, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tease out some of the reasons why you might not be interested in living with the hope of glory now. But, like, but question number one, like diagnostic number one is, like, are you interested in the mysterious things God is doing in the world and intends to do through you, Christ in you, the hope of glory? So like that's one thing to just kind of shelf for a minute. Like am I really interested in that? Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And and, and maybe if you're not or maybe you're unsure, um, what is it that's keeping you from wanting that? And the way you answer that's incredibly important. Because there's a there's, you know, I I've, I've kind of, you know, pinned a, a couple that 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 are relevant to my life why I struggle to really live with the hope of glory in mind. And here's here's a couple of them. One is I'm really uncomfortable with desire and longing. Like some of, some of you have been betrayed by having desires and longings in your life that weren't met. And so you would rather just live at the surface level than to be submersed into like those desire pieces. Because what God's saying is like, hey, if you want abundant life, if you want the life that you were made for, you, you have to come down to the desire level. Like you have, to, you have to deeply want that. And it's really uncomfortable for many of us it is much easier to live life up here where there's no desire, there's no longing, there's no joy, there's no deep satisfaction where life is just kind of, you know, go with the flow. But maybe there's a discomfort at the desire level or maybe, maybe, you're, and this is still connected to your desires, maybe you're just afraid of disappointment. Like, okay, God, if I, if I, if I take this invitation that you may be putting on the table for me to live with the hope of glory now, um, what if it just doesn't pan out the way, I kind of like my life the way it is now. What if I go all in here with this and I'm just disappointed and you just pull the rug out from me and it's just not what I signed up for and I want my old life back, but it's too late because I, I went in all in with this. Like those are real, real reasons why some of us have a hard time uh, going into the, into the, you know, the mystery of following God in the world. Um, let me let me transition to the, to the next point here. Do you, do you guys remember, I think it was the late 90s, maybe it was 2000s, when you would go to a doctor's office and they had this, I think it was called seeing eye art, maybe, I don't know, probably had a better name, but like, it's like where it's a picture, um, but it doesn't look like a picture, right? It's just like really fuzzy, you know, kind of artwork of sorts, but apparently... And I say, apparently, you'll find out in a minute here. Apparently, if you were to just stand at the correct distance of this artwork and like fog your eyes, I think you were supposed to like kind of like glaze your eyes over a little bit. You would see an incredible picture pop out. You remember these? Somebody nod your head. Okay, I've just done my best job describing something that I don't even know what it's called. Um, so you remember these? Well, here's here's the truth about these. In my life, um, I've never actually seen it. I'd, I, my eyes are broken. I don't. I don't. I don't know why. Um, I just. I've never seen it. Um, but but I have pretended that I saw it. Um, I've I've done that. I'm like, oh yeah. Like I, I I think I'd convince myself. Like I'm pretty sure I see that. Like that's that's a ship. Yeah, that's a ship. But you know, reflecting on it, I'm pretty sure I haven't. Um, here here's 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 where I want to connect. I think, um, and I'm talking largely to. Christians here. And again, if you're new to our church and you're not a Christian, or if you're old to our church and you're not a Christian, I don't assume everyone here is, but I do know many of you profess to be Christians. So I think there are many Christians listening to this um, who, much like me in the dentist's office, are pretending to see things. Right? You just kinda like, yeah, I I kind of get that, the hope of glory and like God's goodness. I think I think I see that. And um and, and here's the thing, like the Lord is so kind, like, if that's you, like, maybe you've been trafficking in, like, pretend faith for a little while. That, you know, like, the Lord, he, he knows your inside and your outside, and if you've heard nothing today from me, if you're that person who's like, yeah, maybe that's, maybe I haven't seen this. Like, here's the thing, like, like God's not, like, mad at you. <laughs> so there's that. If, you've heard, if you walk away with nothing, like, God's not looking at you like, yeah, I knew you were pretending this whole time, Right? But here's what I do think he's doing, because here's the thing about the God of the Bible. He never coerces anyone. So the God of the Bible is incredibly, eternally um, patient and kind. And he doesn't coerce people into, into following him. What he does is he draws them. And so for the second thing I want, you know, maybe there's someone here and maybe there's not who God is just drawing. Like you you just sense that, that God might be drawing you and maybe... You've been around Christianity and Christians and the church and the Bible, much like that piece of art in the dentist's office. And you've kind of been like, yeah, I kind of get that. For a minute, will you just like take that off the wall? Whatever that picture of Christianity might be for you. Um, like, let's just leave that for a minute because here's, here's what God does with Moses and here's what he does with you is he reveals his goodness. He gives you a crystal clear picture of who he actually is. And it's in response to Moses' request to see the glory. He says, my goodness will pass before you. Here's how it's going to work, Moses. I'm going to take you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to put you in this little, little hiding spot. I'm going to cover you with my hand. It's, it's, you know, it's anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have hands. But he covers him. He clouds him. He says, listen, you're going to see me pass by. So you'll see parts of me, but not all of me. Because you, you don't have a category to contain all of me. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to proclaim my name over you. Did you ever catch that? Like I just caught that this week. I've heard about the cleft in the rock. I've sung the song. All the things, but like what God does as He passes over Moses, He 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 professes His name. And let, let me just read it again um, for you, uh, verse six and seven. The Lord, the Lord. So that's that's Yahweh, Yahweh. I am who I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. This is, this is who I am. If you want a crystal clear picture of who the God of the Bible is, here it is. I'm a God who's merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I keep steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. Um. I could preach seven sermons on that, but here's here's what I want you to take away from that. God's person, who he is, his face to you is, is radically wild. And by radically wild, I mean you cannot predict it. Just when you think you have gone too far, he is right there just when you think you are a lost cause he is right in front of you. And the, the thing about the God of the Bible is he is relentless um, to make himself known. And some of you have been around um, a God who, who, who quite honestly you think is just mildly annoyed with you or he's just waiting for you just to make the wrong next step so he can drop the other shoe on you. Or you just, you just have this sense that when he's around, you got to be just on your game, right? Like you just got to be, it's like walking on eggshells with him. And you just, you get this sense that you're just never enough for him. And if you're around a God like that for long enough, um, one of two things will happen. Either you you will never want to be around him, ever. And if you're here today, that's probably not you. And so I won't spend much time there, but you probably just won't want to be around him, so you'll just stay as far away from him as you can. Or you will be exhausted being around him. Being around a God who you have to walk on eggshells around is, is quite honestly exhausting. Um, A.W. Tozer, famous mystical author, guy, I don't even know where he wrote this, but he, he said this. He said that we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. The way you think about God will shape your destiny. What you think God's face looks like in your life, it it will translate into the path that you will walk down. If you think that God is always mildly annoyed or deeply angered at you, it will deeply affect the way you walk and live your life. But if you believe that God is merciful and gracious, He is slow to his anger, He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that's that word Hesed. His Hesed love, this is the the wildly unpredictable love of God. When you think you're at your worst, He's right there with you. Like He's abounding in that. He has legally bound himself to love his people without end. And he, he's steadfast for thousands of generations. Maybe you caught that. Like, he's steadfast for thousands and yet he will not clear the, the guilt of, the, of those who, who are in their iniquity to the third and fourth generation. What God's doing there is saying, listen, my mercy outweighs my wrath. <laughs> the wrath is there. To the third and fourth generation, God will visit those who remain in their iniquity. But my mercy is heavy. It's to thousands and thousands of generations. I want to I want to do this in closing today. Um, yesterday was nine eleven, and I was home a lot of the day, and so um, got to talking to the kid. You know, a lot of stuff was on. We were watching some sports, and there was just infused stories, and so we got. got a lot of time talking about um 9-11 yesterday and i came across a bunch of stuff and maybe you did or didn't but probably the best thing i heard and and actually read uh was a uh, was a speech that uh, george w bush former president bush gave at the memorial of flight 93 um so flight 93 is the fourth uh, plane uh that uh the, the mission was you know thwarted by those that were on board and it and it fell just outside of Pittsburgh and never never made it to where where it was going. Um and I'm not gonna read the whole the whole article here or the whole this is the transcript of the speech. But I do want to read um the closing words of it if I can find it here. Here's what uh good old George W. says he says twenty years ago Terrorists chose a random group of Americans on a routine flight to be collateral damage in a spectacular act of terror. The 33 passengers and seven crew of Flight 93 could have been any group of citizens selected by fate. In a sense, they stood in for us all. The terrorists soon discovered that a random group of Americans is an exceptional group of people. Facing an impossible circumstance, they comforted their loved ones by phone braced each other for action, and defeated the designs of evil. These Americans were brave, strong, and united in ways that shocked the terrorists but should not surprise any of us. This is the nation we know, and whenever we need hope and inspiration, we can look to the skies and remember. I believe there are people here who need hope and inspiration. I believe there are people here who do, have not discovered nor even began to tap into the potential of what it means to belong to the God of the Bible. And here, if, if you need hope and inspiration, if that's you today at all, if you need hope and inspiration, here's, here's how I want to close the book of Exodus. Is that the God that is on the top of Mount Sinai is Jesus Christ. That the God who has revealed his glory through the Exodus is the God who has revealed himself in the face, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. See, see, Jesus is the one who went into bondage like the Israelites in Egypt. He was oppressed, afflicted, and had nowhere to lay his head. He went under the authority of a relentless and cruel king, the King Pharaoh. And then he also withstood all of the plagues of God's wrath on judgment. So the plagues that should have fallen on rebellious sinners fell on him. He took plague upon plague upon plague, including perhaps the the peak and the climactic plague of God forsaking him in the form of execution. And then he delivered his people from death, bondage, and sin itself by parting the Red Sea, as it were, and drowning all of his and our enemies. They were plunged under God's wrath for us and we came out alive. And then he takes us in the wilderness, the wilderness of our lives, the wilderness of your life. And do you know what he does? He feeds you manna and he gives you water. He gives you drink that will satisfy the depths of your soul. He he climbs up the mountain of Calvary's cross as a perfect law keeper. So so Jesus Christ is both the law giver, the law keeper, and the one who died for law breakers. As we sang in the first song, he hushed the law's loud thunder for you. And then... If it were not enough, Jesus Christ being the very tabernacle of God, the scriptures say that the fullness of God was in this man. He was full of God's spirit. He lived the life that none of us could ever live nor ever will live. He died the death that all of us should have died and those who belong to him never will die. And then he said, uh, as he was leaving this place, as he was preparing for his, his death on a, on a Roman cross of execution and cruelty, as he was leaving, he said, it is better for me to leave you because as people were struggling, we need your presence, Jesus. How are we gonna make it through this world? How will we navigate life in the wilderness? How will I know where God's at? And Jesus says, it's better for me to leave so that when I leave, I can do What? Send my spirit. And the spirit doesn't dwell in a temple made by the hands of men. The spirit dwells in people made by the hands of God. So God's spirit now dwells inside of anyone who would follow him. And so our guide is no longer in religion it's no longer in rabbis. It's no longer in moral performance. It's no longer in keeping up with the Joneses or whatever path is guiding you through the wilderness. It is the spirit of the living God inside of you. And so Jesus invites you. He invites you to follow. Do you remember how, he, what did he tell his people? Follow me. Anytime anybody wanted to be a part of me, he says, follow me. Where, is it? where are we going? He said, follow me, I'll take you home. And uh, much like James suggested in the confession of sin today, this is not a, just a future home, this is a home right now. And some of you are so disoriented and disrupted by your life right now that you feel lost, uh, disoriented, clueless, not knowing where to go. And Jesus says, I'm inside of you, follow me and I'll bring you home. And, and here's, you know, here's the final response of the book of Exodus. I've said it again. Um, God is most interested in who you're becoming, not just where you're going. And oh, Christians, how we have missed that. That you feel like just, you know, as long as your, your conscience isn't racked with guilt and the possibility of hell, that's good enough for you. What what God is saying is, I'm more interested in who you're becoming right now as you follow me. And so that's the invitation, and Jesus made it very clear. What What is the response of someone who wants to follow me? You must give your life away. In no uncertain terms, friends, you must either literally or metaphorically sell all that you have, give it away, and follow him. You must pick up your cross daily, which is not just you know, an instrument of inconvenience. It is an instrument of death. You must die to yourself so that you might find life. Anyone who would lose his life finds his life. And I'm curious if there's anyone here today feeling curious, confused, and looking for guidance. And I would say follow Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are our Lord. You are our God. You're the God of Sinai. You're the very tabernacle of the fullness of God's presence. Lord, you're the one who gave and kept and died for lawbreakers. Lord, you're everything. And you, by your grace, have drawn us to belong to you and to follow you. What a What a mysterious calling, Lord, follow you. Uh, But Lord, it is my deepest prayer for our church that we would be people who are authentically following you. Uh, That you might even disrupt our patterns of life, Lord. You may call people out of careers. You may call people to give their money away. You may call people to move to new zip codes. You may call us to do things with our children in our community. You may call for us to go and to care and to serve the least of these in the world. We don't know where you're taking us, Lord, but we know that you are taking us home, and home is with you. So, Lord, would you make us a church of people who want to follow after you? Thank you for giving us the book of Exodus. We pray that you are pleased through our reading, preaching, and hearing of it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives.